Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Annabelle Labreck, and today we'll be talking to Brianna Theobald about her new book, Reproduction on the Reservation, Pregnancy, Childbirth, and Colonialism in the Long 20th Century. Brianna Theobald, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Brianna, I wonder if you could kick things off today by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, Well, I grew up in rural Nebraska. Actually, that's not even entirely true. We moved around quite a bit when I was uh, when I was in when I was a child and in elementary school. But we moved to a small town called Wayne, Nebraska, um, in the northeast corner of Nebraska when I was in seventh grade. So I went to uh, junior high and high school there, and then I went to the University of Nebraska Lincoln for my undergraduate degree. I think I really had no idea when I went into undergraduate what I would go into. But by, oh, maybe sophomore or junior year, I ended up with a double major in English and history, um, which is exactly the opposite of what I thought I would do when I started because my mom was an English teacher, is an English teacher, and my dad uh, was trained as a historian. So I did not expect to follow their paths, but I did. And then I stayed at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln for my master's master's degree and uh, worked with a wonderful historian named Margaret Jacobs, who wrote uh, uh, her second book, White Mother to a Dark Race, right around, or it was published right around the time I was working with her and then won the Bancroft Award while I was there. Um, So I think that was a really kind of exciting, formative time for me. And then I went on to do doctoral work uh, at Arizona State University down in Tempe. Great. And how did you come to write Reproduction on the Reservation? So I I guess it probably goes back to um, my time at UNL, uh, working with Margaret Jacobs, although I probably didn't quite realize this at the time. But um, I mentioned her book that came out, while I was working with her. And at least in retrospect, it seems to me that Margaret's exploration of social reproduction uh, led me to think seriously about biological reproduction. Um, For those who don't know, her book is about the removal of Indigenous children and uh, in the U.S. West and in Australia. And her, her focus on children, I think, raised at least some early questions for me about the experiences of Native mothers. And then it was also during my master's program that I I read some excellent studies. This is actually in one of uh, Margaret Jacobs' classes uh, that looked at colonialism and reproduction in in other contexts. So books like Politics of the Womb, which focuses on Kenya, uh, Laura Briggs' work on Puerto Rico, Reproducing Empire. So then when I went down to Arizona, and as I started my doctoral work and really started to think seriously about um, this topic or started to 
gradually refine the topic, I, I distinctly remember being struck by the relative scarcity of scholarship on Native reproduction. And there were, of course, a handful of, of really important exceptions to this, but I, I quickly realized that there was a good deal more work to be done. Um, and then my initial approach to the topic was very much a policy-oriented one. But if the question is how I came to write reproduction on the reservation in the form it ultimately took, I would really have to point to connections that I made with Native women in the Phoenix area um, during my graduate program, and specifically with a Crow writer named Valerie Jackson. Uh, Valerie is a granddaughter of Susie Yellowtail, uh, a woman I'm sure we'll talk more about later. Uh, And Valerie made a number of introductions for me on the Crow Reservation that really transformed the project. So I then spent a good deal of time doing research at Crow, both in the tribal archives, which are incredibly rich, and also conducting oral history interviews. And the reservation serves as an extended case study throughout the book. So that's the form it ultimately took. You open with Women of All Red Nations, also known as WARN, an organization founded in South Dakota in 1978. And you explain how your introduction to WARN women's writing spurred a number of historical questions and answers. What was your was your research with Warren Documents where this project started? And what were some of those questions that you had in mind? Oh, that's that's a good question. I I don't hmm. I, I think that it was some of the material related to Warren was uh, very came very early to me, in part because it's much of it is at least mentioned um, in the handful of important articles and book chapters that existed on sterilization abuses, on coercive sterilization at the time that I started my research. Um, I think it was, it was a bit later that I, I got to see the documents myself. Um, but I think that those, when I saw those documents, it, it came at an important time. I was, it was near the end of my dissertation. So I was at that point where I was really starting to conceptualize um, the book as distinct from the dissertation. Um, In my case, I I know this works differently for scholars, but in in my my case, the the book is is very, very different um, from the dissertation. I had a two-year postdoc in which I was able to effectively rewrite the whole thing. And so Warren entered um, the, this, these primary materials related to Warren entered at an important time for me. And one thing I was immediately struck by in looking at early Warren records is their insistence that the injustices they protested in the 1970s were not anomalous, they certainly weren't new, but rather were firmly rooted in a much longer colonial history. They wrote about having survived hundreds of years of genocide, for example. So I, I don't go back hundreds of years in this book. There's certainly more work to be done. But I do take a longer view by beginning about a century before Warren's founding. And I, I also take Warren's theoretical contributions very seriously, or at least I, I, I try my best to. Uh, Warren women are clear, were clear, um, that the various struggles that they waged were 
fundamentally intertwined. Um, and also that, that reproductive matters can't be separated from the political, economic, social, and cultural contexts that shaped women's lives. So I mentioned in the book that I view this in many ways as an early articulation of Native reproductive justice. And I strove to maintain this framework as I went about telling this history. And then I guess one final thing I would maybe say about Warren or rather about my choice to begin with this group is that the book narrates uh, a pretty rich history of women's activism and advocacy, which I, I wanted to foreground right at the outset. Warren is certainly better known among historians than some of the other women I encountered in my research, but we still have a good deal of work to do, I think, in recognizing women's many contributions to Red Power, and that includes Warren's multifaceted work. Chapter one focuses on the continuity and evolution of childbearing and childrearing practices among Crow women at the turn of the century. You trace this history using oral histories and ethnographic observations. Could you tell us a bit more about doing that research and synthesizing those sources together? Yeah, yeah, great question. I guess this kind of gets back uh, to my decision to ground this history in an extended case study. Um, it, It didn't take me long to realize that the implementation of policies pertaining, well, policies in general, but then especially those pertaining to reproduction, wasn't necessarily consistent throughout Indian country, um, despite bureaucrats' intentions. But rather, implementation was shaped by a variety of factors, and those factors included local circumstances and Native response and engagement. So in order to understand how Crows responded to the policies and practices and pressures that I go on to describe through the book, it seemed important for me to establish at some length, right at the outset, an overview of Crow politics and history, Crows' ideas about land and family, understandings of gender and kinship, and so forth. And then, so part of this work, as you suggest, was to establish the broad parameters of the crow birthing culture that existed right around the turn of the century. Um, this is a birthing culture that shared many features with indigenous, uh, with other indigenous birthing cultures in the United States, but wasn't necessarily identical to them. Uh, again, specificity does matter here. And so thankfully, I had a number of crow sources to turn to on this. Uh, I relied heavily on oral histories In this case, not so much those I conducted myself, but those other scholars conducted years earlier. Crow was one of those reservations in the late 1960s and early 1970s that uh, a number of graduate students in anthropology visited uh, with Doris Duke funding and conducted a bunch of of interviews. Um, I was able to look at several of those transcripts. Tim McCleary, a faculty member at the Tribal College on the Crow Reservation, um, graciously, very graciously shared the transcripts of interviews he's conducted with Native elders in the last maybe two decades or so. Uh, I think this is one of many, many reasons it's so crucial to spend time in and develop relationships in the communities we write about, because this book would not at all be the same without the richness of, of Tim's interviews. And so then these oral history sources, as well as a handful of Crow women's memoirs, gave me really some context for interpreting the ethnographic texts that I also used. 
uh, a handful of academic and amateur ethnographers visited Crow in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And most of them did pay at least passing attention, um, sometimes pretty substantive attention, to pregnancy, childbirth, and, and also child rearing. So their field notes and published texts are certainly useful, but I've not surprisingly found that they need to be used carefully. Uh, Robert Lowy in particular makes a, a few claims, for example, that many people on the reservation insist are just plain wrong um, and that I haven't necessarily seen uh, further evidence of in contemporary sources. So that's part of this, this synthesizing work that you mentioned. So much of this research involved acquiring as many sources on these topics as I could and then trying to corroborate them. Chapter two zooms out from the Crow Reservation and addresses the Office of Indian Affairs Save the Babies campaign, which you argue is a cornerstone of early 20th century federal Indian policy. In what ways did the Save the Babies campaign either prolong and or break from existing policies of assimilation? So Save the Babies is frequently mentioned in policy and tribal histories although often in only a line or two. Um, and that's, that's not necessarily unreasonable. Uh, I, I've spent a lot of time looking at OIA, OIA um, Office of Indian Affairs records, throughout the 1910s. And really, in some locations, it's quite clear that the campaign's rhetoric far outpaced its reality on the ground. So when I present Save the Babies, uh, or try to think about Save the Babies as a cornerstone of early 20th century federal Indian policy, I'm really thinking conceptually here. Uh, Cato Sells was the commissioner of Indian affairs during much of this period, during most of Save the Babies. And he used to say, we can't solve the Indian problem without Indians. And for me, this speaks to the sense of uh, really existential crisis that poor health outcomes and specifically infant mortality provoked for the Office of Indian Affairs for the federal government in this period. And so I really do see the Save the Babies campaign by and large as furthering the assimilation agenda, which was the office's central objective at the time. Um, and this agenda, this assimilation agenda, was, of course, evolving during the progressive era, as Fred Hoxie and others have shown. So in my own analysis of the campaign, analysis of the campaign I, I demonstrate the, these assimilationist aspects uh, by analyzing the types of messages that Native women and mothers in particular received during maybe field matrons' visits to their home, um, during the so-called baby shows that were held annually on some reservations in these years. But I, I think where my analysis really expands earlier histories of Save the Babies is in looking at the assimilationist function that government employees hope that these hospitals, which were really just being constructed during this period in, in response, uh, among other things, to various health crises, including infant mortality. Um, but the vision that these employees had for how these hospitals would serve um, assimilationist functions in regard to childbirth and biological reproduction more broadly. Now, I should say that Native people sometimes had very different views of these institutions and how they should look 
sound and function. And I, I try to sketch some of these perspectives in the last third or so of the chapter. Um, I zero in for at least a few pages um, on the Crow Hospital, returning to the Crow Reservation, uh, to look at this stretch of time in which um, it seems that Crows had managed to uh, obtain a notable degree of kind of a control and authority within hospital laws. Um, these, this reality came to light because of the complaints of a disgruntled um, white nurse, but Crows largely had the, the um, support of a Crow uh, hospital matron at the time and the, the physician in charge, the senior physician. And this didn't last long. Um, the physician actually ended up being uh, transferred and he ultimately resigned. But it gets at this, this moment before I see at least some of the, the very overt kind of coercion in bringing women to the hospital. And it gets at this moment in which um, government employees were attempting to sort of persuade Native women into the hospital. And that resulted in uh, at least an effort to allow for uh, some accommodations to Native women's wishes and desires. In chapter three, we meet Susie Walking Bear Yellowtail, who you mentioned earlier, and who was the first Crow woman to become a registered nurse. So what does Susie Yellowtail's story tell us about Crow and other Indigenous women's responses to federal policies and efforts during the 1920s and 30s? Yeah, so so Susie Yellowtail was a remarkable woman. Uh, It was a, a real honor to tell a small part of her story in the book. Um, because Yellowtail's story was remarkable in so many ways, she shouldn't necessarily be viewed as, as representative or of Crow or Native women during her lifetime, whatever, whatever that means. Um, but I did find that following Yellowtail's trajectory, which I start to do here in Chapter 3 and then continue in the later chapter, revealed some pretty significant trends in childbearing and childrearing, particularly at this point at the local level. Um, so as you mentioned, Yellowtail was the first Crow woman to become a registered nurse. Uh, she worked briefly then at the government hospital at Crow Agency. And this her brief tenure there provided me with an insider view of that institution, which Yellowtail believed left much to be desired in terms of the care that Crow patients and particularly Crow women received there. Then after leaving the hospital, um, Yellowtail gave birth to three children in the early 1930s, each under quite different circumstances. The first occurred in a private hospital off the reservation, the second in the government hospital uh, where she had formerly worked, and then the third at home with the assistance of her husband's aunt, um, aunt who was a highly respected Crow midwife and healer. So I view this kind of snapshot of her birthing decisions during this basically four-year period as really indicative of the intentional decisions that women made regarding birthing during this period in which midwifery and hospital childbirth coexisted on the reservation. And the specific motivations for any given decision uh, varied uh, significantly. They did for each of, of Susie Yellowtail's births. but but I, I think I'm able to show um, Native women being very proactive in making these, these decisions. Um, and then 
Yellowtail's story also directs us toward a darker chapter of this history. She was sterilized without her knowledge at the reservation hospital shortly after the birth of her third child. And government records and Yellowtail's later recollections suggest that she wasn't alone in this experience. So uh, this was something I had, I really had not anticipated finding uh, in reservation records in this period. And these developments made me acutely aware of the tremendous discretion that physicians wielded in government hospitals in these years. And then in the book, I place this episode in the context of the national eugenics movement and, and the way that eugenic thought functioned on Indian reservations, which is something that I really think we need to continue to explore. Um, I guess the final thing I should probably say about Susie Yellowtail in the context of this chapter uh, is how she responded to uh, these experiences. I'm quite certain, because she responded quite actively, I should say, uh, I'm quite certain that she was involved in the agitation that led to the removal of the physician who sterilized her. Actually, the resignation ended up being of the physician who sterilized her. It was also, perhaps more importantly, around this time that she took up midwifery. So she combined her Western medical training with crow-worthy knowledge to provide women with an alternative to the government hospital. And that Yellowtail only began working as a midwife in the 1930s uh, makes clear that the transition to hospital childbirth wasn't as linear as we might sometimes assume. So that's really where we leave Susie Yellowtail at the end of chapter three. In chapter four, you take on the matter of post-war native urbanization, and you do so in a new way by adopting native women's reproductive health as your analytical framework here. What does centering the experiences of native women who moved from reservations to urban areas tell us about urbanization? And what does this tell us about native women's reproductive health during the 1940s and 50s? Yeah, I hadn't initially expected to take on the subject of Native urbanization. But as I started to track this history over time, it became clear that I couldn't ignore the experiences of the thousands of women who left their reservations and moved to cities in in the years following World War II. This included women in the Yellowtail family. So I began this part of the project by looking at the BIA relocation records for Montana, which are located in um, the Denver area in Colorado at the National um, Archives branch there, and then later supplemented that with other source bases. But with these bureaucratic records, I was truly surprised by how frequently I came across references to pregnancy and childbirth. I feel a bit silly actually saying that now because it seems obvious, considering that we're talking about the relocation of so many women of childbearing age But it wasn't something I had previously come across in the literature on relocation. And it wasn't something, I guess, that I was fully expecting to be uh, kind of under the purview of these relocation officers. But at any rate, one of the conclusions I drew from these records is that because BIA officials believe that the success of the relocation program depended on the migration of women as well as men, right, depended on the migration ultimately of full families, they grudgingly made some accommodations, however limited, and they often were quite limited, to meet women's reproductive needs in cities. So I talk a good deal about 
the expansion of health insurance coverage up to one year is one example of this. And I don't mean to say that maternity coverage was the only reason that the BIA acquiesced to pressure from urban Indians in expanding this coverage, but I'm able to demonstrate that it was a prominent concern. And then let's see, another observation I make in this chapter uh, is that reproduction was a central factor in the mobility that other scholars have identified as really a defining characteristic of post-war native urbanization. Um, I mean, to give you a couple examples of how this might have worked or how this often worked, a woman might return to a reservation to give birth, uh, maybe because she could do so for free in a government hospital, maybe because she wanted to be with female kin, maybe because of some combination of these and other reasons. But then she would return to the city shortly after. So her, her husband might actually stay in the city the whole time. Um, sometimes, in contrast, the, the birth of another child or another pregnancy could be the reason for a family's decision to leave the city and return to the reservation, at least for some stretch of time. Um, it also worked in the other direction, right? So family members on the reservation, especially mothers, sisters, aunts, and cousins, might go stay with a relative in the city to be with her uh, during confinement. I also cite oral histories, which suggest that the presence of children made it especially important to urban Indian parents that the, the family make regular trips to the reservation uh, so that their children would know their family and homelands. And this is all in addition to Native women's participation in the creation and maintenance of the Indian cities within cities that Kent Blancet writes about uh, in, in A Journey to Freedom. So we can really see an expansive geography of Indian country at play here. And I I trace that through reproduction and mothering. Chapter five describes the impact of termination policies following World War II on native women and their reproductive rights. And on the Crow reservation, Crow women do not sit idly by. Susie Yellowtail and other women organized to fight back. How is this resistance to termination informed by Crow women's previous experiences with colonialism and encroachments on their health and rights? Yeah, you know, I, I think you're right to hit on Yellowtail and other Crow women's previous experiences with colonialism, because as I'm thinking of it now, uh, I'm thinking about how I decided to start this chapter, which is with a letter that Yellowtail wrote to a friend in 1951. And I did that because the letter makes very clear, first of all, that she was very engaged regarding the political and economic issues facing her community. Um, But more importantly than that, she she was an astute political observer and her assessment of what was going on at the time was deeply rooted in history and how things had played out for crows in the past. So she was talking about land in that letter, but the rest of the chapter, I think demonstrates that this was true of, of, her, her assessment of government health services as well. Now, from what I said earlier about Yellowtail's experiences in the 1930s, it's uh, certainly clear that crows were not always satisfied with the care they received in Indian service hospitals. But it's also true that they had, by this point, um, devised ways of ensuring that the institution met their needs. Um, and I guess... I mentioned earlier that we can actually see this dating back to the 1910s, the, the hospital's first decade. So if they didn't like a nurse or a physician 
they were vocal about it. During the 1930s, I didn't mention this before, but uh, Susie's, Susie Yellowtail's brother-in-law, Robert Yellowtail, was superintendent of the reservation um, from the early 1930s through 1945. And especially during his tenure, he repeatedly called on physicians to um, come to, to report to tribal council meetings and to answer charges against them in person directly. Crows also had a long-established practice of effectively voting with their feet. There's one really interesting example I was just thinking of earlier today that actually didn't end up making it into the book, I don't think. Um, but in 1944, the hospital, the personnel at the, at the Crow Agency Hospital issued new rules restricting visiting hours, which was totally antithetical to Crow understandings of the social nature of healing. One, one bureaucrat who visited the reservation around this time uh, actually complained that Crows treated the hospital as a social center. Um, but at any rate, the new rules went into effect. And in the aftermath, there was a dramatic decline in hospital usage. And uh, such that ultimately, some of the, the higher ups off the reservation, the BIA, instructed hospital staff to basically to find a compromise to make some real accommodations. And thereafter, sure enough, hospital usage increased again. Um, but what I get at, so, so that, that past, that history is important context for the 1950s as well, because really these sorts of victories were challenged by the transfer to the public health service, which happened in 1955. Um, PHS was a much more standardized agency and most crows actually disapproved of the transfer, um, in part because PHS was an unknown entity. The BIA, by this point, for crows, was a well-known entity. Um, but I'd also say that many Native people were really savvy in recognizing the political implications of a transfer of responsibility from the Bureau in the context of terminationist pressures of this era, and also at a time when many reservations were losing their hospitals. There was a whole wave of hospital closures following World War II and into the early 1950s. So that's all the, the kind of context of what's going on in the 1950s. And then the core of the chapter, as you mentioned, is the, the Crow women who compose a local tribal health committee that was established in the months following the transfer to BHS uh, at a time when crows were, as as a early committee report said, almost up in arms over hospital conditions. And so these women acted as a liaison among patients, the tribal council, and the PHS. And I, I became very interested in their efforts, not only to ensure the hospital survived, but to ensure that it remained what they called an Indian hospital. The, the chapter is actually titled Our Crow Indian Hospital. And I was also struck um, by this health committee's emphasis on maternal and infant welfare. So again, with the longer history here, they were really continuing a legacy of Crow women's advocacy around these issues. In your last chapter, we wind up back where we started with Warren and the fight to protect Native women's reproductive rights during the AIM era. But not all Native women who exercise bodily and reproductive autonomy were associated with any organization at all. What was your experience in research and writing this history of a more diffuse kind of self-determination and autonomy like? Yeah, so something that always struck me about the scholarly literature on coercive sterilization uh, and sterilization politics in the 1970s is that 
I'm generalizing a bit here, but everyone more or less seemed to be using the same set of sources. So one of my objectives in this chapter was to basically expand our source base, to expand our way of thinking about and looking at this topic. Um, one, one way I tried to do that was by providing a discussion of the family planning options available to Native women in the 1970s. Um, to kind of put sterilizations in in context, uh, a broader family planning context. So to your point about women exercising autonomy, I tried to get a, a sense of what options were available to women and w- what choices just regular women living their lives were making. And I, I found that there's significant variation here. So it seems very likely uh, that some women felt significant pressure to accept an IUD, an intrauterine device. At the same time, I interviewed one woman who decades later uh, expressed gratitude that this technology was available to her as she had found oral contraceptives ineffective and she very much wanted to avoid another pregnancy. So this gets at a point that other feminist historians have made, which is that any given reproductive technology is not inherently liberatory or oppressive. And that's why it's so important that we understand the context in which it was used. And this is certainly true for sterilization. Um, but I, I guess to, to answer your question maybe a bit more directly, um, Warren plays a central part in this chapter because these women, as I said earlier, they were vital leaders in the struggle for Native women's reproductive autonomy, broadly understood. Um, But another way of expanding this discussion was to also include the voices and experiences of other women who were involved with these issues, um, many of whom wouldn't have identified with militancy. Some of them may not have even viewed themselves as activists. But as just a few examples, um, I discussed the community health representatives who sounded alarm bells about unethical sterilization practices in Wisconsin in the early 1970s. And I also talk a good deal about Native nurses. Um, I was really struck by the crucial role that nurses ended up playing in this story. Native nurses first called attention to sterilization practices at an Indian hospital in Oklahoma, um, the American Indian Nurses Association, which was founded in the early 1970s, engaged with this as well as a whole range of issues pertaining to maternal and infant health. And I really like this part of the story because, in part, because it circles back to Susie Yellowtail. Uh, Yellowtail was a founding member of this professional association of Native American nurses, and the group honored her at its annual conference in 1978, the same year that Warren held its first meeting. So I I see some of these things sort of coming full circle. Finally, you conclude by coming full circle yourself and reiterating a central theme of your book, which is that the history of Native women's rights to reproduction and bodily autonomy are inextricably bound up with settler colonialism. And as you show us in your conclusion, that history continues up to the present day. Contemporary struggles for environmental justice, women's health, and Indigenous sovereignty are a significant part of this story. So besides reading your book, how can our audience, and historians in particular, learn more about and engage with these topics? 
Yeah. So I'm really glad you asked that question. I think, so I think paying attention to what grassroots organizations are doing and saying, so through social media or what have you, is really crucial right now, maybe now more than ever. Um, so I'm, I'm on Twitter, although I'm really bad at it, but I do follow, um, I'm good at following the right people. <laughs> um, and so, I, I mean, it's just a few examples. On Twitter, I follow this group called Indigenous Women Rising. Um, I also follow the Changing Women Initiative. I'm, I actually mention um, the Changing Women Initiative briefly in the epilogue. Um, I would also maybe suggest following Representative Deb Haland on Twitter or else through her website. Um, she has been working on several issues pertaining to Native maternal health, as well as to violence against Native women. And this is work that is, uh, much to my frustration, seldom covered in mainstream news outlets. Um, so going directly to kind of Haland as a source for that um, is, is pretty valuable. I, I suspect many listeners of this podcast already listen to the podcast, All My Relations, but if not, I highly recommend it. Uh, an episode that they, I think the most recent episode that they just did on love and blood quantum is really incredible. Um, all of us should be following the work of, of Native feminist scholars, uh, scholars like Mishwanda Goman, Chris Finley, Sarah Deer, Kim Talbear, among so many others. And I think, so among other things, Native feminisms help us to understand the connections among the various struggles, contemporary struggles that you mentioned. And that's, I think, one reason that their work is so so crucial for all of us right now. And then one thing I just thought of as I'm doing all these shout outs, although it's on a slightly different note, um, but I'd also like to give a quick shout out to Ben Peace, who is the, the Crow artist who graciously agreed to let me use his absolutely stunning painting on the cover of the book. Um, Ben's, in his work, Ben often takes a historical, historical photograph or portrait as a starting point and then reimagines it from an Indigenous perspective in the present. And I mention all this uh, because I have to say that his work has really encouraged me to think deeply about the role of art in imagining Indigenous pasts and Indigenous futures. So he's definitely one I would encourage people to follow on social media and what have you as well. Wonderful. Thank you for all of those recommendations. Well, Brianna, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we wrap up, I have one last question for you. What are you working on now? Yeah, so I, let's see, the, the, I was, the book was out of my hands, I should say, sometime, the, this book, Reproduction on the Reservation, sometime, I think it was maybe May, um, and I have to say, I've spent much of the last several months, uh, this is not what I was expecting to do, but working on shorter, more article-length projects that relate in some way to the book, um, I guess I probably shouldn't be surprised that after seven or eight years, I'm having a hard time leaving this topic behind. Um, but so I have started to think uh, a good deal about Native women's relationship to feminism, really to femi feminism's plural. And that's obviously something I thought through uh, um, 
quite a bit with the first book, but I'm specifically thinking about this now through their involvement with the battered women's movement of the 1970s and 80s, and really could probably go with plural there too, battered women's movements. Um, Many people don't realize that Native women founded some of the first wave of shelters in the United States. And so I've just started to look at examples in South Dakota and Arizona There are early examples in Alaska that I am just dying to look into as well. Um, In some states, like South Dakota and Minnesota, Native women were also actively involved in statewide coalitions for battered women. This was true to some extent nationally, too, with the National Coalition. So um, I'm, I'm interested in exploring how Native women struggled to indigenize the battered women's movement and how the the context of colonialism and their ancestral teachings shape their approach to this multiracial, multiethnic, but often white dominated movement. And so in thinking about these questions and even really being able to raise these questions, um, I'm really indebted to the work of Sarah Deere and Kimberly Robertson, two native scholars. Um, And then in moving forward with this project, which I don't even know if I can call it a project at this point. Um, But lately, I've also found myself extending this analysis to think more broadly about women of color's contributions to and criticisms of feminist anti-violence organizing. So um, this is the sort of set of questions um, and themes I have in front of me right now. And I guess time will tell how it all develops. Well, Brianna, that sounds like another important initiative, um, and we all look forward to hearing more about it when the time comes. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thanks so much. 